Hello, folks. Welcome to the September edition of Information's Crossroads podcast. I'm John Burke, America's editor, uh, and we hope to deliver you uh, the most thematic news in project finance within the next 30 minutes or less, or we'll deliver you a free pizza. So joining me today on the podcast is uh, Mike Piquel, uh, a partner at Winston Strong and a uh, long-tenured uh, infrastructure lawyer to discuss um, what's been a fairly busy summer um, in uh, P3 land for good, bad, or as we'll get to, a little bit of ugly too. So thanks for joining us on the show today, Mike. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So we're going to kick off talking ugly, I guess, and get to something better <laughs> towards the end of the program. Uh, what happened in the past uh, month Again, August is supposed to be a quiet month, but it, it's just not anymore, I guess. Um, was that two uh, higher profile um, P3 projects uh, basically got canceled? Um, Denver's Great Hall uh, was it, the uh, supposed to be the modernization project at the Denver International Airport. And they had a proponent and they had gone through a pre-development stage and finally... Uh, there was a const construction on the project. Uh, 18 months later, uh, Denver uh, canceled out the concession um, with uh, some very well-established airport um, investors and developers such as uh, Ferrovio. Uh, then um, the uh, Alabama had uh, their I-10 and Baywa Bridge Improvement Project uh, effectively canceled by the governor uh, late last week um, after um, I believe it was a, a committee had failed to um, uh, put the, uh, the subject of the project on the agenda to get approved, which would have made them eligible for federal funds, uh, which they need because it would have covered, uh, effectively a TIFIA loan would have covered 33% uh, of the project. Uh, two divergent stories, but, you know, one unfortunate outcome. So, Mike, let's start with Denver first. Um, it'd be good to get your perspective about what happened here, because you would think um, they did everything by the book. Um, they didn't just approve this consortium first. They went through a pre-development phase, uh, meaning they wanted to make sure both the agency uh, and the private partner were on the same page with each other as to what they want built and what the design concepts were. Uh, and that was an 18 month period, I believe, before this current 18 month construction period. Uh, and then once construction commenced, uh, that's when all hell seemed to break loose based on what some of the filings uh, came out. So what, what can you tell us in terms of your perspective on this? Well, I guess, if, first off, I would just say that, I, that I'm not representing anybody in the, in the Denver Great Hall project. Fair enough. And, and hadn't hadn't been working on it, but it, typically, I guess when there's a when there is a pre-development arrangement like this, it does give the you know both the developer and the the project owner uh, the chance to get together and uh, you know and really work to create a project that the owner really wants. Um, the, the good thing about these pre some of these pre-development arrangements is it gives a, a project owner a chance to pick the developer it wants to work with and then work with that developer to really craft a project that it wants to see delivered. 
and certainly we've seen that um, that work out successfully on a number of other projects in the U.S., notably the Long Beach Civic Center, uh, which you know uh, was completed earlier this summer, in which the the city of Long Beach and the port of Long Beach have now moved into those facilities and are really happy with the finished product. And then similarly, you saw a similar type of procurement run uh, by Purdue University for its student housing project uh, that closed last November, uh, which is now in construction. So there's certainly some some other examples of that that type of arrangement being used successfully in the market. And un- unfortunately here, uh, things seem to have fallen apart, uh, you know, for, for what seems like a number of a number of reasons, uh, in a in a fair bit of finger pointing. Yeah, certainly. Uh, if you read the language, it sounded like the consortium had their own issues with the quality of uh, the cement, I believe. Uh, and you saw from the other side of things, Denver, uh, sort of alleging bad faith in the way they were doing their their construction overruns. Um, which seems to happen with every project, but it seemed to be what sort of triggered the arrangement to get terminated. Um, I mean, it comes at a very precarious time where there's a lot of investment dollars that are forming or want to be formed to invest in airports uh, in this country. There's a lot of money associated with the JFK project now, which was sorry, two projects, three projects now at JFK involving, um, you know, a public-private partnership um, that being the two terminals, and then you have the mixed use project, which is earlier in earlier stages and behind that. Uh, and then at the other two area airports, Newark and LaGuardia, there's other things afoot there. Um, and of course, there's the two projects that will be constructed at LAX, uh, the People Movers and, and the Conrack. Um, do you feel that there's anything within this story that's going to look negative on future P3s at airports in this country, or you think this is maybe an isolated example? I'd, I'd hope it's an, ex, an isolated example. I, it, it's certainly unfortunate that this is this has been the result of, you know, everybody's hard work in Denver. Uh, no, nobody likes to see a project canceled. Um, you know, and I think like, like we had discussed previously, there's been a lot of finger pointing and um, a lot of accusations leveled on both sides, and I don't, you know, I don't want to get into those. I'm, you know, I think like a lot of like a lot of disputes, the the you know the you know reality might be somewhere in the middle, but who knows? It, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm I'm not involved, but I think that the based on what I understand of some of the uh, challenges that that the parties have faced, it sounds like it might be just a project systems project specific issues. Uh, I, I certainly agree with you that there is a lot of uh, investment appetite for airports in the U.S. and uh, coming off the success of the LaGuardia Central Terminal Building Replacement Project, or Terminal B, uh, as it's called now here in, in New York, um, there's a lot of hope for the airport sector in the U.S. And I, I think with some of the uh, some of the regulatory changes that the administration's undertaken, I think I think people are optimistic about the airport sector generally. Uh, there's certainly a lot of uh, excitement about what's going on at JFK. Uh, the Port Authority, you know, has another another procurement I think underway for LaGuardia to operate, to develop and operate the the Great Hall connecting Terminal B with Terminal C and D at LaGuardia. Right. Uh, 
you know, there's there's the air train project at LaGuardia that, that everyone's been talking about for a couple of years. So there's there's a lot of interesting infrastructure projects in the airport sector here in the U.S. that I think are uh, investors won't shy away from simply because of what's happened in Denver. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, let's move on to Alabama, where it seems like um, you know tolling may have been um, the, the 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 red herring here somewhat. Um, you know, I believe we had said total capex costs were supposed to be somewhere in the two billion dollar range, um, and it seems like if you do the math, the infra grant they got combined with the TIFI alone uh, barely gets you through forty percent of the capex costs. Um, and so you feel like the implication being there that tolling was probably going to get them the rest of the way there. Uh, and you read through the, the stories coming out of Alabama, and it was a very politically sensitive subject, um, especially if they were, you know, this bridge, again, probably much needed, would have resulted in tolls doubling. Um, is that how you, you view the situation, that it was just a very tough thing because of that? Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated situation, and I, I, I have been working on that project. I do represent one of the shortlisted bidders on that. But, uh, you know, as you said, the, the metropolitan planning organizations have to include a project in their uh, transportation infrastructure uh, plans in order for the, the project to be eligible for federal credit assistance. So, you know, the Eastern Shore MO, MPO and the the Mobile MPO need to include the project in their TIF in order for it to be eligible for the infra grant, uh, the TIFI alone, and you know allocation of private activity bonds. Uh, and unfortunately, you know one of the one of the MPOs decided to pull the project from it from the TIF, um, which is obviously very unfortunate uh, because the the project was I think heavily reliant on. Uh, federal credit assistance to help finance it. And so without without an infra grant and without a TIFI loan and without a private activity bonds allocation, I, I think the cost of the project would increase exponentially. And right. uh, so I, it would just be really, really uh, tough for the, you know, Alabama DOT to afford a project like that. I think, you know, the MPO taking the action it did does seem to be the result of um, some backlash against tolling in that area. Uh, you know, so, you know, we'll see if this situation continues to unfold, but it it is very unfortunate. It does seem like uh, the backlash against tolling in that, that region has, um, you know, at least seemingly has killed the project now. Uh... Taking it to a higher level, I mean, is there a, a compromise that can be had in situations like this where, you know, people are willing to reduce the tolling? I mean, there seems to be obviously a very healthy appetite from PABS bonds from what we've seen. Uh, and obviously an expansion of the program was put in place uh, in the past couple of years. I mean, is, uh, is that something you think might come back sooner rather than later? In terms of this particular project? Well, again, I'm trying to not bind your words to a particular project. I'm sort of saying, sure. well, is there a compromise to be had at some point in, in a situation like this? Well, it ultimately, ultimately, you need to look at what the revenue source is that's mm -hmm. going to be 
to, to repay the the capital uh, on the project, you know, debt or debt or equity capital. And in this case, you know, a decision had been made long ago that uh, this was going to be a demand risk project and user fees were going to be the source of revenue to repay the debt and equity used to, you know, finance the construction of the project. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you if you were to make compromises on, you know, a project like this or other other demand risk projects, you really have to kind of look at the different types of funding sources available. I mean, you could you could effectively buy down a toll by by a you know a procuring authority making larger milestone payments during construction, but but obviously that has a cost as well. You know, another way you can reduce tolls is by extending the term of the concession. Um, obviously, it's you know you don't need as much if you if you have a 50-year concession as opposed to a 30-year concession. You know, obviously that has an impact on the toll uh, toll revenue that gets collected and what the toll rates are set at and how they escalate over the term. So there's a number of different levers that can usually be, be pushed or pulled uh, in order to, to come up with the right mix for any particular project. Um, there's all That's also done against the backdrop of what's affordable for the procuring authority, what, what they can and can't do under state law. Uh, you know, there's a there's obvious as many levers as you have. You also have probably equally as many different constraints. So it it really just it just depends on the project. Great. Okay. Well, let's move to a, a, a better plane here with um, the uh, last couple of days. Have uh, seen um, some advancements in some bigger social projects. Um, Miami-Dade uh, Courthouse, um, which had been a very long gestating project and uh, had to change sites, I believe, once, uh, finally selected a uh, winner um, for there uh, to build the courthouse there. Uh, and LA Civic Center, um, which is going to be a very large project, mixed-use project out of uh, Southern California, was able to shortlist uh, their bidders, um, and I believe Maryland schools also got there with their shortlist as well. So, um, you know, three very different versions of social for certain, but, you know, it sounds like all three uh, seem to be advancing, and you, you would hope uh, as much trouble as Miami Dade's been, um, they finally did pick a winner. <laughs> and so uh, hopefully, um, you know, that all advance and get done. I believe the consortium was uh, Plenary and Tudor Perini, um, who made it to the finish line. Um, so what can we say about social at this point, uh, Mike? It seems like these uh, are projects that there's a lot of political motivation behind, but also they seem to just get over the finish line, sometimes a lot more smoother than some of these large civic projects. Yeah, it's. Um, I think the growth of the social infrastructure uh, sector in the U.S. has has been a little bit bit slow. Um, <laughs> you know, for for one reason or another. Uh, you know, the first the first big social infrastructure P3 closed in 2010. Um, you know, that was as everyone knows, the Long Beach Court Building project. Right. But there wasn't there wasn't another social infrastructure project that closed after that for a, for a number of years. I think the next one. Uh, next one after that was the Long Beach Civic Center, uh, which was followed 
closely thereafter by the UC Merced uh, 2020 project. And then um, I think we saw a couple projects, social infrastructure projects close in, in 2018 with both Purdue University's um, student housing facilities project and the Howard County Courthouse project in Maryland. So we've certainly seen more social infrastructure activity in the last couple of years than we did in, you know, maybe the, the first first five years of the decade. Um, but we're, you know, we're increasingly seeing more social infrastructure uh, opportunities. Um, and it's, you know, it is really exciting to see Miami-Dade finally pick a preferred bidder for its courthouse. I know that that project has had a lot of uh, trials and tribulations along the way, and it's exciting to see the LA Civic uh, Street Civic Center project moving forward, uh, the Prince George's County uh, Schools project moving forward, and as well as some of the other projects. You know, there's the Triangle project that the City of Denver is looking to to undertake at the uh, as part of the Stock Show. Uh, yeah, National Western Center, right? National yeah. Western Center, yeah, exactly in in Denver. So that project's moving forward. So there's a there's a lot of interesting things happening in the social infrastructure market right now and um, you know and and maybe it's a mix of transportation and social infrastructure but I also did see that uh, you know you reported over the weekend that uh, the New York State Thruway Authority has a a tentative awardee for the uh, 27 rest areas uh, you know across the thruway system so there's uh, you know there's a lot of lot of different different and exciting things happening in that space yeah, I mean, perhaps too, I guess, more manageable since these are buildings being built and um, maybe more predictability about how they're going to get paid for in the revenue stream, you know, versus, uh, you know, toll roads in general. Maybe that helps lower CapEx as well. Well, so, and I, I, that probably, the size of the projects probably does does help. I think they're a little bit more manageable for the procure, some of the procuring authorities that undertake these projects. Um, you know, I think the other thing that's obviously helpful in terms of the length of time that the procurement takes is, you know, what needs to be done from an environmental uh, compliance standpoint. You know, typically vertical infrastructure projects such as a, you know, a courthouse or a civic center uh, do not require uh, compliance with with NEPA so you don't have the lengthy um, you know environmental process that you have on on horizontal or you know civic uh, heavy civil transportation mm-hmm. uh, so you know that that helps speed up the procurement and you know and oftentimes as well when you're talking about cities and county governments they're they're usually a little bit more nimble than than statewide or State authorities, you know, states or statewide authorities, when they when they're able to when they're procuring a project. So, all of that tends to, I think, you know, help. It's just, uh, you know, unfortunately, in the past the projects have been fewer and far between. But certainly, the last few years that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Excellent. Um, so now, uh, looking forward. Um, you know, I think it, we've seen uh, a lot of authorities in the past start to veer a little bit away from the traditional P3 model or the DBFOM. Um, I think in Canada, you could look at a good cross section of these projects now, especially on the LRT side that have uh, opted for DBF. Um, as far as uh, the US side of things, um, you know, it's hard to 
pin the, the tail on Pennsylvania, but obviously they blew up a very prolonged process for their broadband project uh, last year and opted to go for a smaller DB, uh, I believe into two different segments, which is in the process of getting done now. Um, and then there's just the straight out private investment in different systems like what Star America's been doing, um, buying into a state data center or, uh, you know, now with their airport project. Um, but you're seeing a lot of different varieties come out in the past couple of years and just sort of moving away a little bit from DBFOM. Do you believe um, this is like a trend that we should be continue to see or you think it's symptomatic of like just these projects and it's more one-off? Well, I'm not sure that, that there's actually a, a move away from, you know, design, build, finance, operate, maintain as a delivery model. I think that's still, a, a, you know, an important delivery model for greenfield projects. Mm -hmm. I, I think though what you're seeing is that there's a lot of, a lot of appetite to invest capital and infrastructure in the U.S. And I think investors are being a little bit more creative uh, you know, uh, or open-minded, I think, about what they're investing in and, you know, and what's infrastructure. And they're looking at different ways to invest in, in infrastructure in the U.S. And, you know, whether that's through data centers or, um, you know, or broadband or, uh, you know, or, or other things, they're, they're just being a little bit more, I think, open-minded in how they you know, and what they're analyzing and what they're looking at and what they're willing to invest in. The number of, you know, big civil transportation projects that are out there in the U.S. are, are somewhat limited right now. And so as, as these, you know, as infrastructure investors are looking to deploy capital, they have to find other avenues to do it. And I think that's really a lot of what we're seeing right now. Great. Um, and to conclude, uh, I guess this builds upon your point. You know, we obviously still have a lot of uh, a, an emerging, not an emerging class, but a growing class of these middle market infrastructure investors um, that are out there, new funds that are forming, such as the Vio Capital, um, sort of the former Acom P3 team. Uh, and then you combine that with all of a sudden um, a lot of foreign investment flowing into the infrastructure sector in the U.S. Uh, through the likes of Arjun and Anton. Um, you know, there's just a lot of different players in the space right now. And I'm kind of wondering if you have an opinion and you can defer from this about what subsectors do you think is going to be the subject of a lot of this deal flow, um, coming in over the back half of uh, this year in 2020? Well, I'm not sure it'll actually result in, in deal flow the next six months, you know, or in early 2020, but I, but I do think that the there will be a lot of continued interest in telecommunications and broadband infrastructure. Uh, I, I don't see that that going away. Um, so I, I think that's that's one sector that will continue to uh, attract interest. Um, you know, obviously social infrastructure as well. Uh, you know, we talked about a number of the, the projects that are in procurement, but there's there's others that are, are not quite there yet. There's a couple of them in Hawaii, I think, that are seem to be pretty attractive uh, yeah, projects. Yeah, Center, yeah, sure. Yeah, and so, um, you know, so I think social infrastructure will continue, um, will continue to, to garner attention. Data centers as well will continue to uh, be attractive as an investment opportunity. 
you know, and then and then obviously everybody's always looking for for great transportation infrastructure to invest in. So I think that will that will continue as well. Well, Mike, uh, I think that's about all the time we have today. So thanks for joining. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the program, and uh, we'll see you for the next edition. Burke out. <laughs>